0: We've been on this series of uh, The Way of Jesus now for about a month, and what's kind of uh, you know, jumped out right out of the gate uh, for me as we've looked at his life and his story and the way he went about being the Savior of the world is, is kind of two things that kind of scream out to me from Scripture. The first uh, way is that Jesus' way uh, was filled with humility, and the second way is that it was just very personal. Hi, Kyle. Just noticed Kyle was here, so he's not always here. So good to see him and hope, by the way. Yes, Um, I digress. So Jesus was humble. Jesus was personal, okay? And last week, Justin um, reiterated those traits when he took a look at the way in which Jesus went about choosing whom would be his disciples and then how he went about inviting them along for that ride. And so we saw that um, Jesus looked at uh, not maybe the outward appearance uh, in these guys that he he took in as his disciples. He kind of chose some guys that were kind of overlooked by the world and uh, and invited them into this, and really focused more on his ability to equip them uh, to do the job more than kind of what they brought to the table themselves. Okay, and then he also you know you notice in the way in which he he invited them that it was in a very personal way. You know he walked down to the water's edge where they were fishing you know, looked him in the eye and said, come and follow me. He didn't put a sign-up sheet in the synagogue or make an advertisement or, you know, send out a mailer to do this. He, he invited them personally and really primarily not to a mission, but primarily to, first and foremost, a friendship with him. That, that's Jesus's personal nature. And as we move forward in the story this morning, I want to give a bit of a disclaimer as we go through the Gospels and kind of look at Jesus' way, you're going to notice sometimes that that I I seem to kind of skip over some things that we could be talking about, and that's only because we're going to talk about it later probably. So there's some things in the way we jump around and some qualities and ways in which Jesus operates that if we hit on every one of them right now, I'd I'd never get through it. So just be patient if there's some things today you're looking at thinking, well, why didn't he say anything about that? And then hope that I mention it later, okay? So now that Jesus has stepped forward... At the age of 30 and begun his public ministry, now that he's been baptized by John and, and God in that moment to said, "Hey, this is my son," so he's identified Jesus' identity, now that Jesus has been led out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by the devil, now that He's chosen His disciples, what's next? So let's look at that today. I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter one. It's page 699. Mark chapter 1. I want to start in verses 14 and 15 today. It says, After John, John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So let me ask you this. At this point in the story, there is obviously no cross no resurrection all the things that we would probably say are the good news about Jesus so at this point in the story when Jesus says repent and believe the good news what is the good news that he's talking about it's me asking you what's the good news at this point in the story right on any idea yes okay she yeah she's saying the prophecy from the Old Testament about this Messiah that was going to come is here okay and what does that mean ultimately what does the word Emmanuel mean God with us. God's with us. And so I, I kind of want to ask a question at the beginning. Is, is that exciting? Like how much do we appreciate that truth alone? Put aside the cross in us being forgiven, which is an amazing benefit. Put aside the resurrection and the hope of eternal life with him. Is it enough that just the creator of everything came down in the flesh And walked alongside those people and now is inside of each one of us. Like, is that enough to celebrate in our life? That was an interesting question for me to kind of wrestle with this week. That's really good news. And over in in Luke chapter 4, he includes a story right after the temptation. Where Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue and he sits down with all these folks that he has grown up with his whole life, and he says, hey guys, guess what? I'm the Messiah, right? The guy that you grew up around and you've known forever, I'm him, and, and then and he laid out, like this is the way in which I'm gonna fulfill the Old Testament prophecy we're talking about, the way in which I'm gonna be that savior, okay? So I wanna take a look at what he said. This is from Isaiah, but it's in Luke four. Jesus stood up and said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So let's see how this prophecy kind of gets played out. We're going to go down to verse 21 in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read for just a little bit here. It says that they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So we see um, kind of immediately that Jesus' way includes teaching the scriptures Um, and then healing those in need. So it's kind of a a show and tell ministry or tell and show, kind of depending on the story or the day, which one comes first. But here's something that most of us don't think about, but I think it's a really important detail um, that Jesus kind of brings to light here. In verse 21, it says that Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. In other words, Jesus went to church. Why is that such a big deal? I think Eugene Peterson puts it really well. He says this. He says, we live at a time where there is a lot of this anti-institutionalism in the air. I love Jesus, but I hate the church is the theme that keeps reappearing with variations in many settings. So it's interesting to note that Jesus, who in a bridge form is quite popular with the non-church crowd, has not was not anti-institutional. Jesus said, follow me and then regularly led his followers into the two primary religious institutional structures of his day, the synagogue and the temple. Neither institution was without its inadequacies, faults, and failures. The temple especially was shot through with corruption, venality, injustice, and discrimination. All the same, he didn't boycott the place. He didn't avoid either synagogue or temple. He regularly joined in the prayers in the small-town synagogues scattered around Galilee, Made regular pilgrimages with thousands of his countrymen to the great appointed times of festival in Jerusalem. We sometimes say, thoughtlessly, I think, that the church is not a building, it's people. I'm not so sure. Synagogues and temples, cathedrals, chapels, and meeting halls provide continuity and place and community for Jesus to work his will among his people. A place, a building, collects stories develops associations that give local depth and breadth and continuity to our experience of following Jesus. And this is such a key line. (laughs) We must not try to be more spiritual than Jesus in this business. Following Jesus means following him into sacred buildings that have a lot of sinners in them, some of them very conspicuous sinners. Jesus doesn't seem to mind. So you would think that, you know, being with Jesus, that you could just go off into the hills and listen to him teach, and that would be church, But Jesus says, no, there is a church in town, we're going to it, and you're going to be a part of this community, and that's vital. And even though it's filled with people who are broken and messed up, that's where I want you to be. That's where we learn about God together. And so the way of Jesus is the way towards community and regular church life with messed up people like you and I. So Jesus went to church, he taught the scriptures, and it says that people were amazed because he taught as one who had authority not like the other teachers that they'd heard before. And I read a commentary this week that said, and I'd never really heard this before, that Jesus' authority came from his submission. Jesus' authority came from his submission. Because you see, in humility, he obeyed the Father and went and got baptized by John, even though he was sinless. Didn't really need the baptism, per se. In humility... He obeyed the Spirit when the Spirit said, I want to take you out into the desert for 40 days, and you're not going to eat. (laughs) Wasn't necessarily a necessary step, but he submitted himself to that. So there's this idea, as we've been talking about, of downward mobility, right? Jesus modeling that he also had authorities in his life that he had to follow too. His authority came from this submissive spirit, this obedient spirit, but also from his identity, right? When he's baptized, right, God speaks up and says, hey, that's my son who I love. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to what he has to say. And so that'll give you some confidence when you're looking for some authority, right? When God says, hey, listen to this guy, right? So not only his submissive spirit, but his identity as well gives him this authority. And in the same way, did you know that all of us have been given authority to teach the word of God as well, right? Let's look at Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus, this is like the last things he says before he's lifted up into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, you will have authority. So when you speak about your faith, when you talk about the word of God to others, do they say, wow, that person's got some authority Or are you kind of this little weasel of a person that's kind of shy and not really sure whether they should say something or whether I should confront that sin I see in other people's lives or whether I should share my my faith or what I know about God with someone else. Maybe I don't know enough. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't do anything, right? We've been given authority to go and and to speak the word of God, and it's not based on, on what we're capable of doing, but maybe God would show up. If you made yourself available and you opened your mouth, maybe God would speak and do something in somebody's life. So God has given us this authority. But why didn't Jesus just stop there? Why didn't Jesus just give some good sermons and some great Bible studies and just call it good? Why does he add healing to his ministry? And specifically at this point in kind of the beginning of his journey, why is this so critical? I'm opening it up to you. What do you think? Man, this is a rough day. Wake up, folks. Here we go. Yes, thank you. Okay, good. Yeah, there's some proof, some evidence that I am God. I'm going to show it by doing this, okay? By healing this person, raising this person from the dead, things normal people can't do. Yes, what else? Cow. Uh, just like spreading like what he does. Uh like like go along with that. This you know, if you see it then people will spread the word of, of what he's doing and basically kinda of get it out there that you know again that he has got that it's more of a uh, just getting people to know who he is. Okay. Yeah, just spreading, spreading his name a little bit, okay? And, um, you know, there were probably a lot of people at the time, and I know, as I've read and studied, there were a lot of other people claiming to be Messiah, not just Jesus. There were a lot of false messiahs. And so differentiating himself between the people that were just kind of false guys and the real thing, too. Somebody else have a thought? Yeah, Gigi. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay, so he came to demonstrate the, the person of God. And so if God's a healer, if God's compassionate, then he needs to display that and show that to others as well. Could you shut that door over there? Ready real quick? Thank you. So, I mean, we're just assuming that the children are being tortured. We don't need to hear it, right? Okay, just making sure. Um, so, and really what this was too. So a demonstration of God's power. Um, yes, establishing credibility. You know, one of the things I wrote down is that, you know, the whole old saying, people don't know, don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. You know, so that kind of goes along with this. But also, guys, just a taste of the kingdom, like giving people a taste of what the ultimate healing will be. So these physical healings that he was giving people were kind of a shadow of the ultimate reality that we would experience one day in his presence. And as I studied this week, just a little bit of a side note here, but I think it's important, is that about 20% of... All the information in the four Gospels is related to healing in some way. Either Jesus or his disciples healing, and they healed in a lot of different ways, mental, physical, emotional, uh, demon possession, raising people from the dead. And so if about one-fifth of all that's recorded about Jesus' life and the ministry he's doing regards and revolves around healing, then shouldn't we ask the question and look at ourselves and say, is that, does that reflect my life? Like, am I in the healing business with people? Would people say if they spent time with me, hey, 20% of his life, he's, he's in there with, with people and helping them heal and become whole. And, and so I think as we evaluate our lives, as we evaluate church, what we're involved in, we have to ask the question, how many of our services, our activities, our studies, those things, are, are more focused on information than transformation? Are we always busy about telling people about God, but not really displaying who he is and how he operated? How often are we digging deep into the heart issues, examining what's broken inside of each one of us, coming alongside others who are broken and saying, hey, I'm in this with you. And as Jesus said in his mission that we are to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free, Jesus said that we are to be ministers of reconciliation as well. If we're honest, I think there's some very clear reasons why we tend to operate we do as the way we do as the church, and I don't just mean Wellspring; I mean the church as a whole in America today. Okay, and it's because of this: preparing a sermon, singing some songs, providing children's ministry, um, leading a study during the week, gathering kids for a young life club on Wednesday or Thursday night—all good things. But we can do those things without investing much relationally. Without opening ourselves up to truly entering into the pain of others. And we can even look at those things and we can say, man, they're a success because people are showing up. They seem to be having a good time. People seem to be entertained. But the problem is, is that's not what we're called to do. That's not why we engage in mission and in ministry with other people. Jesus said, we're here to to heal them, to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free. We're ministers of reconciliation, reconciling people to God and and people to one another. And that demands a much deeper investment than just putting on something that people show up to. And as we read the Gospels, I think it's really important for you and me, as we look at the stories, to take some time to kind of visualize what's going on there. And I I don't do this very well, very often. Um, But have you ever read through the Gospels and really tried to kind of close your eyes and just picture the scene of what's happening? To get a sense of the the sight, the sound, the smell, to to kind of try to emote some kind of, or or to conjure up some kind of like an emotional response in you of, of, wow, what that must have been like, because it's so easy to just kind of read across it. But you look at this, and it says Jesus teaches in the synagogue, and then, and then he immediately goes from there, and Mark gives us a couple different stories of, of this guy who's demon-possessed that Jesus casts this demon out of him, and it shrieks and leaves, and then he goes to Peter's house, this new disciple of his, and heals his mother-in-law and, and frees her from this, this fever that she was having. And as you can imagine, living in a culture like that 2,000 years ago where you know, medical practices were crude at best— you can imagine the, the depth of desperation and hopelessness. I mean, things that are maybe kind of minor ailments that we might be born with today that you can just get a shot for, inoculation, or that you can just get a minor surgery for or that you can take medicine for at some point in your life that can give you a pretty good quality of life might have been death sentences for those people back then. I remember just 25 years ago in Haiti, and i'm i'm in this hospital holding this baby that's dying of tuberculosis that we get shots for when we're kids and it's just it's hard to imagine that desperate culture that sense of hopelessness in most of the people in the world and especially 2000 years ago Right, Because back then to be sick or deformed at that time made you an outcast because the assumption was is that you were sinning in some way and that's why God was punishing you with this illness or this deformity. And so those people were kept out of social life. They couldn't come into the synagogue or to the temple. They were, they were outcasts. The only people that they were around were the other people that they were quarantined with on the outskirts of town. And so I want to do something right now. I don't want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment with me, okay? And I want you to try to imagine the desperation, the hopelessness, the longing to be normal. And so I want you to kind of picture just a dusty village with some mud-baked homes and this guy named Jesus, this healer, that people have heard about, comes walking into town with his disciples and probably kind of a small entourage with him and takes up residence in a home. And the word gets out on the street that Jesus is there. And I want you to visualize a parent scooping up their sick kid from their deathbed and hurriedly walking to that home. I want you to picture a cripple dragging themselves along the ground to try to get to Jesus. I want you to picture a blind man asking his friend to lead him to Jesus. I want you to picture some lepers coming over the hill on the outskirts of town because they're segregated. They're not supposed to be around other people, but they're so desperate that they're Forgetting all the rules, and they're pressing into the crowd for the chance that this Jesus can do something for them. Can you see that? And now I want you to double that crowd by about two or three, (laughs) because we tend to kind of picture things in small terms, but it it was big. There was a lot of folks there. Can you hear the cries of desperation? The moans of pain. Can you hear the screams of the demon possessed? And the overwhelming scene of human suffering and need. And everyone crowding around Jesus, begging him to do something. Desperate. Now, I want you to open your eyes before you fall asleep. Okay? Was that a different experience? Taking you into that moment? And Mark says that the whole town gathered at the door that night, bringing all of the sick and the demon possessed. And it says that Jesus healed them. Can you imagine how long that took? Luke has the same account of this story, and in his gospel, he said this. He says that Jesus laid hands on each person. Jesus' whole approach seems extremely non-efficient and time-consuming, doesn't it? How many efficiency people are out in the crowd today? Like, you're always looking for, like, what is the absolute, come on, put your hands up. Put your hands up. What is the quickest way I can do this, the most efficient way? Some of you are lying because I know you and I don't see your hand, right? You're the people that are planning three or four stoplights ahead, right? If I get in this lane, can I go this way and cut this light off, right? That's me, okay? Efficiency. And Mark says that all these people come, Jesus lays hands on each person, I want you to listen how to one commentator described what their approach would have been. It says, in this situation where so many people came to Jesus, thank God again that Jesus is not like me. The logical, efficient, lawyer side of me would get a bullhorn and herd the groups of people by sickness and disease. Lepers to the left, right? Lame and blind in the middle, demon-possessed on the right, all others in front, Then with one swooping wave of the hand, I would heal them and send them on their way. But Jesus' chief concern wasn't efficiency or expediency. Jesus' concern was for each person and their needs, not his own. Luke 4 tells us that Jesus healed them by laying his hands on each one of them. This is the difference between superficial concern and sacrificial love. It's the difference between superficial concern and sacrificial love. But man, waving the wand sounds so much more tempting, doesn't it? And we see it in the way that we approach ministry. Efficiency is usually our greatest concern. So for example, a church might be aware of the fact that there's a lot of people in their church that are grieving And so what they do is they have a Sunday school class or a seminar about grief. And everybody can come and learn and we can gather up all the people that are hurting and teach them how they're supposed to handle with their grief. Instead of sitting down with each person, listening to their story, and walking with them through the process of healing. Teaching information can be efficient but impersonal. And healing requires engagement and intimacy and touching. But we are so tempted to keep it all tidy and clean and efficient in our lives, aren't we? We go to, I don't know, you don't maybe, but I go to, and I have in the past, go to church ministry conferences, or some of you guys have gone to Young Life conferences, right? And we go there looking for the next thing, Right, The next idea, the next strategy, the DVD series, the curriculum, the three easy steps that are going to help our ministry go to the next level. Right? We want to reach people for Christ, but what we don't want to hear is that change comes slowly, one hurting person at a time. And it requires a level of intimacy and a level of engagement, a personal touch that can demand more than we're willing to give. And loving people through that slow process of transformation and healing is the strategy that we don't want to hear. But it's exactly the way Jesus operated. And as we move through the Gospels, we see this, this pattern over and over again. People just keep coming, the broken, the hurting, the blind, the poor, the lame. It had to be exhausting. Constantly, people crowding around Jesus. We don't always want that, do we? There's a lot of us, including myself, that, that don't want to be Jesus in a way that's going to attract a crowd of needy people around me all the time, Right? Be honest here. In a way that demands love and sacrifice and patience in ways that we don't feel capable of. But Jesus seemed to embrace that calling. And as tiring as it was, as easy as it would have been for him to just do it in some impersonal way that would have just waved the wand and healed all those people so that you know he only had three years and a lot of towns to go to, and it was inefficient and time-consuming. It's the way our Savior operated and the way that he asks us to operate as well. And so to live in the way of Jesus as it dealt with healing, we have to begin asking ourselves this question or a question like this. In any situation, is my way of operating with people convenient, self-serving, or impersonal? In any situation, is my way of operating with people convenient, self-serving, or impersonal? And if the answer is yes, then it's probably not the way of Jesus. And as much as we want to just drop off our clothes at the donation place, or drop off our food donations, or write a check... Or stand behind the safety of the, the serving line at the food kitchen, or use our talents to speak, sing, serve, run video, etc. Jesus' way speaks to us a different path. He says, I want you to be in the moment in whatever capacity or ministry I've called you to, and I want you to just touch one person that's in front of you right now. And I want you to allow yourself to be overwhelmed, and I want you to allow yourself to be uncomfortable, and allow yourself to waste time loving, needy people. And here's the truth to this as well, is that Jesus' way left many unhealed just one at a time approach, right? On his way to saving the world eternally on the cross, there were a lot of people that he did not physically heal, like the end of the story, right? He's praying the next morning, disciples are like, hey, there's more people here that want to be healed, and Jesus says, let's get out of here, <laughs> all right? I've got the next town that I've got to take the message to. He didn't say, save everyone physically along the way, and you don't have to save the world either. Jesus already did that. Our calling is to be his hands and feet one person at a time, however long that takes. And here's the cool thing about it, is that when Jesus left, he's getting ready to leave the earth, he gathers up his disciples and he says, guys, listen, it's gonna be better that I leave and go to be with the Father because when I do, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And instead of just being with you like I have been, the Spirit's going to be in you. And he says, you're going to do greater things than I did. Now, how do we know that's true? Because there was only one Jesus at that time. A slow, patient, inefficient Jesus. A very personal Jesus, right? But now there are billions of his followers in the world. Billions of people who have been indwelled with the Holy Spirit, given the power and the ability to come alongside people and heal them in the name of Christ, whatever that looks like, whatever their infirmity, whatever their pain, whatever their suffering, fully equipped to touch them, to walk alongside them, and remind them of the hope they have in the Savior, the good news of the gospel. That's why we'll do more, because there's more of us. And so here's the temptation this morning as you walk away from here, and it's the same temptation that we have every week when we're challenged with some message that we're like, man, I need to do something different. The temptation is this, where we want to go sometimes with this message is this, or with any message. Well, how can I do that better? I'm going to try to be better next week, and I'm going to try to love that one person in front of me and not be so selfish and blah, 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 good intentions, we want, to do, we want to be more like Jesus. But here's the harder work that I want to ask you to engage in this week is this. The harder thing to do is to ask the question, why? Why do I want to keep my life tidy and efficient and impersonal and you know, safe from the crowds of needy people out there? What is it in me that wants that (laughs) more than it wants to dive in and be like Jesus? And until we come to terms with what it is inside of us that keeps us from going there, we probably won't last very long trying to be a better person. We have to address the issue that's there. And for me, it's just selfishness. I mean, I could probably make a long list if I took the time of the reasons why I don't want to live that kind of life. And when God starts to reveal some things that are broken inside of us about the way that we view people and view ourselves, then we can begin to repent. We can begin to ask him to change the way in which I think and see this world and what you've called me to do. And he can begin to use us in different ways. We can come to him and say, Lord, teach me your way. My way is so far from your way. Show me how to be like that. And the second thing I would, I would ask that you would do, besides for just asking the why question, is this. Is there one person in your life right now that needs some healing that's just right in front of you? And could you commit to dive in with them? Whatever that demands, however long that takes. And I think it's really important that as we look at that, because that can seem kind of overwhelming, is that we just kind of say, God, just help me today to be fully attentive to this person who's needy in my life, that just needs a friend. And then not worry about tomorrow, right? Jesus says, tomorrow's got enough problems of its own today. God, give me the strength I need to be available and helpful today to somebody in my life who just needs a friend. So when Jesus came and he gave us this, what is the word I'm looking for? This ritual, that's the word I'm looking for. This ritual of communion, right? He made it very personal, Right, he said, "This is my body." He didn't say, "This, this is, this is, um, you know, the DVD series I've left for you." You know, he says, "This is my body, broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you." Very personal reminder of his daily just interaction, doing common things with his followers. And so, as we come today, and we have some silence, we're going to give you some silence right now before we engage in communion. And guys, communion this is always optional. Nobody's putting a gun to your head. You don't have to come up here. Maybe some of you aren't comfortable with that or you're not even sure what you believe, and that's okay. You can just stay in your seat. That's that's fine. Maybe you've got something going on in your life where you're just like, I'm not even sure I should come up. I have this unforgiving spirit in me that's just not healthy and maybe I just shouldn't participate. So that's okay. But if you're gonna participate today, I want, I want you to, to spend some time praying and maybe asking, what are God, why? Why do I want to not engage with people sometimes? In, in the healing process. And then God, who is, is there somebody in my life right now that's just right there in front of me, just one person I can spend some time with. And the ushers will dismiss you and you come forward and tear off the bread and dip it in the cup and, and take and eat with us. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word today. Thank you for this reminder of your very personal, time-consuming, inefficient way of loving and touching and healing broken and hurting people. And God, you didn't ask him to jump through all these religious hoops to, to pray a prayer or to make a commitment to showing up at church or to anything. You just loved him. And you gave him a taste of what the kingdom of God was ultimately going to look like. That ultimate day where there will be no more pain and no more tears because we're all completely healed and whole in your sight. So God, help us to confront the fleshly, selfish part of us that that just wants things to be convenient, wants things to be easy and not demanding of us. God, teach us your way. We just give you this time and invite you to speak to us right now.